This past week, I came across a quote that I had come across many years earlier but had forgotten about, but a quote which reminds us of the importance of the topic that we are studying in the year ahead, the study of the perfections of God. The quote comes from a man by the name of Bart Campolo, a man who for a while in his life was involved in some various forms of Christian ministry. But already early on in his life, it became very apparent that his understanding of God was seriously flawed, and it explains why he has deconstructed and today calls himself a secular humanist. But this is what he said back in 2006 in an article entitled, The Limits of God's Grace. He said this, quote, I am well aware that I don't get to decide who God is. What I do get to decide, however, is to whom I pledge my allegiance. I am a free agent, after all, and I have standards for my God, the first of which is this. I will not worship any God who is not at least as compassionate as I am. I required no Bible to determine this, and honestly, I will either interpret it away or ignore altogether any Bible verse that suggests otherwise. There you have the definition of a religious idolater, a man who created an image of God in his own mind and determined against all of the facts of revelation that he would bow before this idol. That is a very frightening place to be, especially as we consider the topic that we have before us tonight, the quality of God's character, which we call His incomprehensibility. Now, before we get there, I do want to cover a few basic definitions, and we'll do this at the beginning of our studies from time to time. We'll talk about some definitional materials, some material that is important not just to the specific topic at hand, but to our study in general. And what I want to do is look at several foundational definitions tonight before we launch into our study of the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility. The first of these is what we call theology proper. You may have heard of that term, theology proper. What is theology proper? Well, basically, theology proper refers to the study of the doctrine of God. Now, we can use the term theology in general to refer to that. The term theology comes from two Greek words, one word being theos, which means God, and the other term logos, meaning statement or uh, message or word, and you put those together, and theology is a statement about God. We can talk about our theology being statements about God. But when we talk about theology in general, that that term has come to refer to all kinds of things related to God and His world, even referring to angels or to man, salvation or heaven. All of those are theological terms, and so we can talk about a theology of man, a theology of angels, a theology of sin and salvation. So we use the term theology proper to refer specifically to the study of the existence and character of God. So if you've ever wondered why that is, if you come across that term in a 
textbook or in a book on God, theology proper is that very special term used to narrow down the focus to the existence and the attributes of God alone. Now, there's another term that we have to define tonight, and that's the term attribute. What do we mean by the term attribute? Well, the term, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the term refers either to an inherent characteristic, that's an attribute, or it refers to a word that ascribes a quality, a word that ascribes a quality. And when we use that term attribute with respect to God, we can use it either in a correct way or an incorrect way. The correct way is to use the term attribute to summarize an essential inherent quality of God, something that marks God's character, what He is eternally, consistently, what He is to be God. That we can call an attribute, and you come across many books that are titled The Attributes of God, and that's how they are using the term. The term can be used incorrectly, however, It can be used incorrectly when we use that term to describe what we attribute to God as our own perceived quality, that which we project onto God. It comes from the verb to attribute. So we can attribute something to somebody that is not true, and that often happens, such as with that quote from from, uh, Campolo, that there is this attributing to the perception of God something that is intensely human. And that's not what we mean in our series on the study of God's perfections, God's attributes. One textbook, Biblical Doctrine, defines attributes this way, the characteristics or qualities of God that constitute Him as what He is. They should not be thought of as something attributed to or predicated of Him as if something could be added to His nature. Rather, God's attributes are inseparable from His being. So we're going to use the term attributes from time to time to refer to God's inherent essential qualities, that which makes God, God. One writer puts it this way, Francis Turretin says, the divine attributes are the essential properties by which he makes himself known to us who are weak and those by which he is distinguished from his creatures. We're going to go through a whole litany of these qualities. They are things that God has revealed to us about who He is, and these are also things that, that differentiate Him, distinguish Him from everything else outside of Him. Now, you might be saying, well, what about the term perfections? Well, really, when we talk about the term perfections, even in the subtitle of this series, we're talking about the same thing as attributes, However, there's a little bit of a different emphasis in the term perfections. Again, biblical doctrine defines perfections this way. Perfections are, quote, the absolute completeness and fullness of God. 
He does not lack anything or have any moral imperfection. So as I said, to speak about perfections is really to say the same thing as God's attributes. But the difference is this. When we talk about perfections, we're emphasizing just a little bit differently the fact that what God is, who God is, is perfect in the sense that He does not contain even the slightest blemish, even the slightest hint of any kind of imperfection. Everything else in creation will contain inadequacies in and of themselves. But with God, there is not even the slightest hint of anything that is lacking. God is perfect in the sense that there is nothing that he lacks. There is nothing that would make God better. There's nothing that would make God more God. No amount of adding anything else. It's impossible. He is the very definition of perfection in his very existence. And so that's why we will use the term perfections. But as I said, there's no need to really debate over the the priority of one of these terms over the other, they really are saying the same things. A set of authors, Joel Beakey and Paul, Paul Smalley, have said it this way, God's attributes are also called His perfections to highlight that He has every good and admirable quality to the highest degree. And what we can say about these attributes or these perfections as we move forward in our series now is this. These are qualities that God never gains and never loses. They are eternal in nature. Every single one that we will look at describes who God is and therefore describes an eternal quality of God. He never becomes more loving He never becomes more righteous. That would be blasphemous to say that of God. He is those things in perfection and is that eternally. Moreover, these are not qualities that God improves as if he has some kind of lack in his being. That he evolves over time because, again, God is perfect. These are also not qualities that are superfluous. Sometimes we can think of it in that way, that does God really need these things or they're just add-ons? And that is certainly not the case. All of these attributes and even more that we will not be able to study during our series are all essential attributes. They make God, God. These are also qualities that define each of the three persons of deity, each of the three persons of the Godhead. They define equally the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we'll talk about the triune nature of God in a future session, but it is important to note that all of these attributes that we speak of mark God as one and mark God as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are qualities that are never in contradiction to each other. They're never at odds with each other. God's love is never at odds with his wrath. These attributes or qualities exist in perfect harmony. And moreover, 
these qualities are not intended as one or uh, as, as a singular one to identify who God is in totality. Rather, these all exist in cooperation, showing us who God is in, its, in His fullness. Now, with that said, let's look at a quality of God that must determine our beginning of this study, and it is the quality of His incomprehensibility. The quality of His incomprehensibility. This is a very crucial quality for us to define. In fact, we dare not proceed further without first setting our minds to understand God's revelation about Himself in this sense And let this reality then determine and define everything else that we will study in this series. This is an incredibly important truth about God. Let's begin then by defining this particular quality. What is divine incomprehensibility? Let's start off by looking at what it means positively. What does divine incomprehensibility mean? And here is the key definition for this evening's study. Incomprehensibility is that quality of God which makes Him incapable of being fully understood or defined by anyone other than Himself. Let me repeat that again because this is crucial. The incomprehensibility of God speaks of that quality which makes him incapable of being fully understood or fully defined by anyone other than himself. What that means is this, there is no mental apprehension of God by any creature, any thinking creature that is able to reflect in the mind's eye, so to speak, all that God is. That's what we mean by incomprehensibility. It means that for all thinking creatures, including angels and especially men, there is and always will be an immeasurable, immeasurable mystery that is impenetrable insurmountable, inscrutable, that shrouds the existence and character of God. We must begin here because we must understand our relationship to who He is in order to properly approach this great grand theme. For all thinking creatures, for all creatures that can think about God There is this immeasurable chasm that exists that can never be overcome. It's what we call the mysterious aspect of God, that aspect about Him that we we can just never understand. We can never comprehend. We cannot even identify. We cannot even define. We cannot even describe. There is an immeasurable immensity to who God is that simply is impossible for us. And that's why it's important for us to start here. It's important for us to 
recognize we are not studying someone like us who is just a little better. You know, if God was just like us, but just a little better, there would be a great deal of God that we could understand because of our experience. And we could then extrapolate from that that there's some additional element that is just beyond us because he's just a little bit better. But that is not who God is. God is not just like us except better. He is not just different from us in degree. He is different from us in kind. He exists in a category in which no one else exists. He exists in a category that is defined by him. He makes the category. And that is not true of us. And so remembering that helps cut us down to our true level. You could put it this way. As I've said already, especially last week, I said every man is a theologian. Everyone has thoughts about God. And and when I mention that word even, there will be images and ideas that will come into your mind. But here is the reality. Even if you have a faithful understanding of God's revelation of himself, even if you have matured a long ways in your understanding of what Scripture teaches about God, we have to understand that no matter how good your understanding of God is, that is not equal to who God is. Your best thoughts still do not equate to who God is. Your best thoughts, your most faithful understandings of God's revelation are but a sliver of who God is. Now, having said that, we also have to say what what incomprehensibility does not mean. There are some important caveats that we must introduce so as to give you hope. When we say that God is incomprehensible, it does not mean that He is irrational, that His character defies understanding or contradicts reason in the pure sense. That's not what we mean by the incomprehensibility of God. It doesn't mean he's irrational, that he defines knowledge or defies knowledge. Also, when we say that God is incomprehensible, it does not mean that he is unknowable. To say that God is beyond our understanding is not to say that God cannot in any way then be known. Indeed, there is an element of great paradox to that, but it is not contradictory. God is both incomprehensible, and as we will see in our next session, God is also knowable. Third, that God is incomprehensible does not mean that He cannot be known truly. It does not mean that even what He has revealed to His creatures can never be rightly understood. That's not what we mean by incomprehensibility. No, God has made himself known, and that knowledge which he has revealed for our benefit can be understood by those with the eyes of faith, those who have been made new, have been given new minds. God can be rightly and truly known 
even though it is impossible to know Him comprehensively. As well, that God is incomprehensible does not mean that creatures then are not responsible for for, for their thoughts of Him. Sometimes that argument can be made, well, let's just be agnostics. Since God is so great, since God is so incomprehensible, so high and lifted up, then I can be safe and secure in my ignorance and apathy. There is a great many people who take that approach, but that is not what the incomprehensibility of God leads to. In fact, the exact opposite, that what God has made known is clear, and every man and woman will be judged according to the knowledge that God has revealed. But coming back to this idea of incomprehensibility, it is so important for us at the very beginning to recognize how faint Our understanding is of God even on the best of days. And that is not a testimony to the obscurity of His revelation. It is a testimony to the immensity of His existence. Aquinas, or not Aquinas, Augustine said this related to the character of God. He said, quote, we are speaking of God. Is it any wonder if you do not comprehend? For if you comprehend, it is not God you comprehend. Let it be a pious confession of ignorance rather than a rash profession of knowledge. To attain some slight knowledge of God is a great blessing. To comprehend Him, however, is totally impossible. Now, from where do we get that testimony of God that He is incomprehensible. Let's look at the biblical revelation, how God has described Himself and told us that He is, to all of creation, incomprehensible. Let's look at some very important texts here. And the incomprehensibility of God is one of those qualities of God that is that is testified to abundantly in Scripture from the beginning to the end. But let me draw out some of the more direct statements. In the book of Job, chapter 11, verses 7 to 9, one of Job's friends, who said a lot of things that were a little off base, nonetheless did say some things that were true. And here is a statement from Zophar, Job's friend, that is true. Zophar says to Job, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. The Psalms speak frequently of the incomprehensibility of God. Psalm chapter 40 verse 5, the first half says this, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. Psalms 145 verse 3, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. 
The psalmist doesn't say it is difficult to probe. He says it is unsearchable. Psalm 147 verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Not finite, not large, not big. It is infinite. The book of Isaiah has much to speak concerning the incomprehensibility of God, specifically in the second half of the book as you look at chapters 40 to 66, read through those chapters and over and over and over again, you see the incomprehensibility of God put on display as God compares himself with the best of the deities of the world. They are nothing. For example, in Isaiah 40 verses 12 to 15 and a few other verses that follow, notice What is said about Yahweh? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? To whom then will you liken me, Yahweh says, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them, not one of them. Is missing. Go out even tonight if you can get away from the smog and the lights, pollution here. If you can get a glimpse of our galaxy and think of the millions of stars that are there in our universe. He knows every one of them by His name. He has called them all. He has put them all in their place We don't even know our own star. That is our God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Think of the highest point that you could ever get in the heavens, in space, And we don't even know where that is. That is the difference, God says, between his thinking, his knowledge, and ours. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And here, quoting from Isaiah, For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who became his counselor? 
Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And then I, uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 to 16, this statement also from the Apostle Paul. As Paul breaks out into doxology, he says this about God. He says, He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Herman Bavink, a Dutch theologian, summarized all of this biblical witness and many more texts that speak of this with these words. He said this, quote, neither in creation nor in recreation does God reveal himself exhaustively. He cannot fully impart himself to creatures, for that would be impossible. They would have to be divine. There is, therefore, no exhaustive knowledge of God. Scripture and the church emphatically assert the unsearchable majesty and sovereign highness of God. There is no knowledge of God as He is in Himself. We are human, and He is the Lord our God. There is no name that fully expresses His being, no definition that captures Him. He infinitely transcends our picture of Him, our ideas of Him, our language concerning Him. He is not comparable to any creature. He could be apprehended. He cannot be comprehended. And if you want to put it very simply, Wilhelmus Abrakel put it this way, can a small bottle contain an entire ocean? And even that doesn't represent it. Certainly the small bottle could represent us, but even the oceans of this world cannot adequately represent the immensity and infinity of God. Can a small bottle contain an infinite ocean? Now, what does this doctrine of divine incomprehensibility then require or demand of us? How ought we to respond to this? Let's look at several adequate responses to this awesome doctrine. First, we must recognize our creaturely limits. We must recognize our creaturely limits. The testimony of Job is really helpful here, going back to the book of Job. And certainly, we, we remember from that book how Job was afflicted with so many trials that they took everything from him except his life here on earth. He was reduced to a man with boils, scraping his scabs on an ash heap. The only thing really other than his bad health that was left to him was his ornery wife. Everything else was taken away. And so Job, at that point, begins to question not the existence of God, but the, the, the reasons for why God would do this to him. 
Yahweh cuts him down to size. And, and even though Job has all these questions and demands of God to reveal himself and explain himself, we see God's response this way. And it helps us understand the, the reason why divine incomprehensibility is revealed to us. It's to cut us down to size. Job 38 verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now stop there. Out of the whirlwind in itself is a picture of incomprehensibility. We can never contain a whirlwind in our hands. And out of this uncontainable disastrous whirlwind, God speaks to Job and he says this to the one who had called him into the dock to give testimony. The Lord says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me Again, he says a little later in chapter 40, verses 6 to 9, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God and you can thunder with a voice like His? Now, in the midst of all of Job's questions, God did not need to reveal himself. He does. But as God reveals himself, what he reveals is no answers to any of Job's questions. Look at the whole book of Job and all the questions that Job asks in the midst of his intense sorrow and pain. God does not answer one of them. But God gives Job something much more essential. He helps Job understand his incomprehensibility. And what is the response of Job as God speaks out of the whirlwind? Job says this in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 40. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I repay to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. After the Lord again speaks to him, Job, at the very end of the book, the last chapter, in chapter 42, verses 3 to 6, we read of this response. Job says, Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. That's what Yahweh had said to him. Job responds, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Man, what the incomprehensibility of God, what it does to us is this. It, it, it reveals us for who we are, and, and it, it forces us to recognize our pitiful, lowly state. It means we must be so very vigilant against what we can call familiarity with God, familiarity with this topic. You see, even like Job, in the times of intense pain, 
in the time of intense confusion, we can become familiar with God to the point where we put Him on the dock. And we demand answers of Him. And the incomprehensibility of God warns us against taking that approach to our pain. Or in the times of blessing, when things are going well, and we think we've got it good, and God's on our side, we can get so familiar with God that we treat Him just like one of the buddies. And the incomprehensibility of God cuts us down to what we really are. We must learn from Job and realize that our hands must not be very far from our mouths. And there must be times when we cover them and cease speaking. John Calvin put it this way, Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Let me just say this, if we have problems of pride, and we do, the ultimate explanation for that is that our view of God is too small. We have made Him out to be comprehensible, and therefore we are arrogant. But returning to a, a, a position of, of lowliness and recognizing the vast, immeasurable incomprehensibility of God, it cuts us down and it causes us to pursue humility, lowliness, contrition. Secondly, the incomprehensibility of God teaches us that we must not go beyond what has been revealed, what He has revealed about Himself. It means we must treasure what God has revealed because He is knowable. He has made Himself clear to the extent that we can know Him, and it means we must then treasure what He has said, and it means we must be content with it. Deuteronomy 29.29 puts it this way, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Here there is put on display the two great differences in categories of knowledge. On the one hand, there is the knowledge that we possess, the knowledge that quote, belongs to us. It is knowledge that we can understand, that we can possess. It is knowledge that we can even put into action. It is knowledge that we can practice and live out. It's knowledge that we can even communicate to our sons. That is one kind of knowledge, and it is defined as revealed knowledge. The things revealed belong to us. That which God has opened to us, that which God has made knowable to us. But there is a second category of knowledge, an ultimate, an archetypal knowledge, and, and it is defined here by the secret things. Now understand this, that term for secret things is not just a reference to the difficult portions of Scripture. That's not what the secret things refer to. The secret things refer to that knowledge which God alone possesses. It is secret. 
It is impenetrable. It is, it is inscrutable. And it belongs only to God. It is what we call that which is mystery. That which we have no hope of comprehending. And they, those things are not to be probed. They have remained a mystery, kept in shrouded secrecy for a purpose. And in fact, what's interesting to note, in the Pentateuch, as God was revealing Himself to Israel, there was already the anticipation that the Israelites would not be satisfied with the knowledge that God has made knowable. They would want to go beyond that. And how would they do that in that day? They would do that by consulting the mediums and the spiritists, trying to find a segue into that netherworld. And so serious was God about not going beyond the prescribed limits that God prescribed the harshest, the severest of punishments to those who sought to disobey this reality. So therefore, men, we must beware of speculation. Speculation about God that departs from His world, His Word, Speculation about God that ventures into mystery. Things that have not been revealed. We must not go beyond what has been written. And what that means is often all that we will be able to say about certain realities is that we know that it is true, but we don't know how. That's a very important distinction to make. And usually a lot of the theological debates happen over the how. But we must be content to say, I know that, but I don't know how. One person who brings this out in, in, in very good explanation is John Chrysostom. He puts it this way, I too know many things, but I do not know how to explain them. I know that God is everywhere, and I know that He is everywhere in His whole being. But I don't know how He is everywhere. I know that He is eternal and has no beginning, but I do not know how. My reason fails to grasp how it is possible for an essence to exist when that essence has its existence neither from itself nor from another. I know that He begot the Son, but I do not know how. I know that the Spirit is from Him, but I do not know how the Spirit is from Him. Very wise words. And we who are seeking the knowledge of God and seeking to go deeper and deeper must be always ready to say, I know that, but I don't know how. And we must be ever so careful about speculation, about seeking to probe these things. Yes, I know that's what the Bible says, but I want to go to the white spaces. I want to go further. And you know, that happens a lot even in academic, and especially in academic and philosophical circles, trying to probe those white spaces. But let me tell you this, men, when you do that, you are on dangerous ground. Martin Luther put it this way, to the extent, therefore, that God hides Himself and wills to be unknown by us, it is no business of ours. God must, therefore, be left to Himself in His own majesty. 
For in this regard we have nothing to do with him, nor has he willed that we should have anything to do with him. But we have something to do with him insofar as he has clothed and set forth in his word through which he offers himself to us. Here's one of the biggest problems of budding theologians and of mature ones is that there is a loss of contentment in what God has said and a dangerous kind of probing and curiosity and speculation about the things that have been left. Let silence. Leave those things, as Luther says, in silence. Number three, the immensity and incomprehensibility of God teaches us that we must use our language carefully. We must use our language carefully in our effort to explain God or even to think of God and to to, to reason it out in our own minds. It is very easy for us to make improper comparisons and draw unappropriate, unworthy conclusions. And those things are dangerous Creating in our minds that which is not true of God is a dangerous thing. It is idolatry. And we see this both in terms of words and in terms of images expressed for us in the second and third commandments. Notice the second of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Notice the problem of images. Yahweh says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Now, what what the Lord is, is, is prohibiting here is not just pagan idolatry. He is prohibiting the Israelites from attempting to picture Yahweh in some material form. This is not just a prohibition of of paganism. This is a prohibition against any attempt to take God and condense Him into an image, into some kind of physical representation. That is an abomination. But not only is it an abomination with respect to images, It's also an abomination with respect to words. The third commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, this is not just a prohibition against cussing. It's not just a prohibition against the flippant use of of God's name. What God's name represents is his essence. It pictures him in words. And what this commandment does is it reminds us that we must be very careful in how we use our words in association with God. Think of that. That This is something that we rarely consider, that whenever I think or speak of God, I have to be very intentional and careful in choosing the words from my vocabulary that I can put anywhere near the name God. Images and words are dangerous things. Think of Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 to 3. Solomon says this, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. 
and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulse, in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool comes through many words. The dream is the image. The words are the assertions. And Solomon says, let them be very few and careful. Again, Herman Bavink says this, we speak of God in human terms and attribute to Him a range of qualities, but as we are doing this, we are ever actually or ever acutely conscious of the fact that all these properties pertain to God in a sense quite different from that in which we find them in creatures. Be careful. Fourthly, we must be led to worship. We must be led to worship. After all, think of it this way. What kind of God would be worthy of our praise if He could fit into our puny minds? What kind of a God is worthy of praise that is but a mere reflection of us just looking a little better? We know ourselves We know how utterly unworthy we are of praise and adoration. So why would the ability to comprehend God in fullness in our minds ever lead us to worship? It wouldn't. This doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God does because it shows us that He is worthy of worship because He doesn't fit in our our brains. And this is what you find consistently connected to all of that testimony about the incomprehensibility of God. It always leads to worship and adoration and praise. Psalm 145 verse 3, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147 verse 5, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Think of Romans chapter 11. We read that text before from verses 33 to 36 that testified to the unscrutable nature of God. And as as Paul reflects upon that, he is led to the only natural outcome, and that is worship when he says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 6, at the end of that doxology, as Paul was moved to to lift high the unscrutable, incomprehensible nature of God, Paul has to to express praise. And, And at the end of that, he says this, to him be honor and eternal dominion. The incomprehensibility of God is is that great fire that will lead to profound worship. 
Look for that in your own lives. And you may be saying, well, I have a hard time in, in my praise and adoration of the Lord. Well, here's the solution to that. You must understand that God is incomprehensible. And probably the reason why you find it hard to adore the Lord is that He fits according to your perception in your head. He doesn't belong in your head. He is infinitely greater. And it is this incomprehensibility of God that leads us to astonishment. It leads us to astonishment to consider the extent to which He has gone to make Himself known. As we think of the great distance between us, infinite in nature, between Him and us, to to think of how puny we are, how insignificant we are, as Job said, how meaningless we are in and of ourselves, and then to think that the one who is, is infinite and who is inherently worthy and majestic, that He would condescend to us, and pull back the secrecy and make himself known to us? That's where the astonishment comes from. As Calvin said, the situation would surely have been hopeless had the very majesty of God not descended to us since it was not in our power to ascend to him. And then think of this with respect to our Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Hallelujah. This incomprehensible one has done what we could not do. We could not go up to him. On our own, we could not fathom even a thousandth thousandth of his essence. And yet he has not only condescended out of considerateness to us to speak in languages that we can understand and to use analogies that we can understand, to to even use the term father because we understand that to describe himself. He has not only done that, but he has sent his son to explain the unexplainable. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has taken that which can ever be known, and He has made it knowable. And we can give God great praise and adoration for that. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, at the end of this testimony, as we draw near to to the conclusion of our time together, we come in humility before You, and indeed the words are few. We bow before the One who dwells in unapproachable light. 
possesses immortality and is the most perfect and blessed. We are not even worthy to speak, and in and of ourselves, all of our greatest thoughts would be blasphemy. And yet you have condescended to us. You have spoken. In many ways, throughout the Scriptures, and then ultimately in Jesus Christ. So that we, even in part, could come to know You truly and to walk with You and enjoy fellowship and the blessing of knowing You. Bring this truth heavy upon us as we go from here tonight. And bring us to much silence and quiet adoration of your incomprehensibility. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.